Paul. This is Caroline. And welcome back to our continuing coverage of the fifth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for episode six, The Testerostial, <laughs> both written and directed by Dan Palladino, all by his lonesome. All by his lonesome? All by his lonesome. This was totally a Dan episode. It was totally energetic, frenetic, tons of like wild stories and chaos and dialogue and music. Music. It screams Dan all over the place. So this one had a really fascinating setup, Paul. This one was not about the flash forwards, flashbacks in the same way they have been. They set this up a little bit differently. I thought this was pretty clever. So the initial frame is 1990 Friars Club, right? And so we're going to be celebrating Susie Meyerson at the Friars Club. For those of you guys who are not familiar with the Friars Club, they do these roasts, especially with comedians, but also with like actors and directors and stuff like that, right? Right. Oh, go look them up on YouTube. You'll find the roast of Justin Bieber or something like that. Yes, and you that's will a see funny one. <laughs> people just ripping into that guy. And it's all supposed to be in good fun, but... Man, I don't know. I could not sit through one of those. It, 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 it like makes my skin crawl to like even watch someone else have to sit through it. The one that got me, Alec Baldwin did one um, and his daughter comes out and she's like, I haven't been checking my voicemails much. And I was like, oh! <laughs> bad stuff. So, I mean, it, this was a, a cool setup because we also got this whole cast of characters who got to come in for this one-off. We saw a lot of our old friends, like we saw Sean Gunn, who played Kirk on Gilmore Girls. He plays Stuart Jones, who's the Roastmaster. I mean, he's also fresh off of Guardians, Guardians. of the Galaxy. Yeah. He plays Craglin. He's a full-fledged member of the team now. So, yeah, he stepped up from Ravager <laughs> to Guardian. But anyhow, yeah, the, the other familiar face from Gilmore Girls is Danny Strong, who played Doyle in mm-hmm. Gilmore Girls, Paris's on-again, off-again boyfriend. Who in Then the, husband. In the meantime, he has gone on to become a real-life power producer in Hollywood. He's more well-known as a hit maker behind the camera. Yeah, he did Empire. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Will Sasso, who is a comedian that Paul and I really enjoy, he was um, on things like Mad TV. He was also on Family Guy. This would give us some connections back over to the Paladinos because Daniel is a part of Family Guy. And um, Alex Borstein, you guys know, obviously, is Susie. But she was also on Mad TV. She was also on Family Guy. So we're getting a lot of nice like crossover, different people that you can see the relationships, the connections there. If you remember the Family Guy episode where it's set in the future and they need to try to get to the Twinkie factory, but they run into Randy Newman and Randy Newman starts narrating what they're doing. And it's just like he's even talking through while they're walking. He's like, left foot, right foot. That's Will Sasso doing the (laughs) ring. Nice. (laughs) Go look it up. I sound just like it. We have a funny um, moment with Will Sasso that happened at um, ATX, which is a television festival that we love to attend every year. We've been there for years. And he came out because he played Curly on Three Stooges. And he was actually there, I believe, for Burn Unit, right? Burn Notice? Burn Notice. I, 
Well, he was on the show Louder Milk, and they brought Louder Milk. Okay, one year with Ron Livingston. Okay, I was seeing. I thought he was sitting there with Dennis Leary when this happened. But that maybe was I'm another large statured man. Okay, all right. Well, so Louder Milk is the one that he was on in a panel for, and they use these um, directors' chairs, which were kind of spindly, and uh, you know, it was a good idea thematically, but not a great idea when it came to practical. And uh, Will Sasso is a pretty big guy. You guys saw him in this episode. And um, he sat down on that chair and that chair broke, y'all. And it was bad. It was real bad. It was one of those super awkward moments because, you know, he's a bigger guy. So, of course, this is like a nightmare situation. And it really, it was not his fault. I mean, the chair literally it was just gave it up. Yeah. I mean, it was not, it was done being a chair. Someone else broke it. <laughs> and then he sat on it and it just gave up. But he like... Tossed it, if I remember correctly. So, someone from the from the house came and said, "Here, I'll take care of it." He says, "Oh no, I've got it." And then he throws it off. The yeah, stage. so it was pretty exciting. <laughs> it was pretty exciting, um, but uh, but not his fault. Like I, if, if we were to ever interview Will Sasso, I would have no problem being like, "Guy, it was not your fault." I mean, you came out, you sat on the chair that they directed you to. It was just awful, awful timing and just not his fault at all. It would have broken under a smaller person. I'm sure it would have. And the thing is that, again, those director's chairs, while thematically cute, they're not that comfortable and they're awkward for people to like get up onto, like perch on. So I felt so bad for the dude, but he killed it in this episode. I think that it was great that they brought this grouping of Sean and Danny and Will on to be this sort of crew who who knew Susie when and went through all these different stories. It was a different way for us to get backstories on what happened with everybody. I mean, we actually get what happened between Midge and Susie. I know that you had told me that some audience response to this episode was maybe negative or it wasn't the episode that they wanted right now. Mm -hmm. But my response to you, if you are one of those people, is that when you are looking back at the totality of this season and you will know how Midge's story winds up, you will also have something that you don't get from any other kind of show, which is all of these little drop-ins thanks to this episode that occur throughout the 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, think about it. You, you get to check in with your characters for little vignettes, of course, but you don't get that normally with, with a show. You get like maybe if a kid's in elementary school for the main part of the show, you get to see him go to college in like a flash forward and bang, that's it. You don't get like these little other little things. So you have a, a kind of a luxury in this episode of knowing a lot more about all of that gray area filled in there. It's a little confusing to me about how people are only satisfied if the train moves forward to the next stop. They're not okay if we just fill out the story where we are current. So it's like, this was a stop, yes, but what we're going to do is we're going to fill your plate with all these different Midge and Susie stories and give you a lot of information about Susie in particular that, God, the, the feud between Midge and Susie is huge. Anyone who is like, well, this was boring. It was like, what are you talking about? Like, we got the actual answer. And the way that they did it where sometimes they would tell the story, but sometimes they would show the story. I thought that that was like a nice mix of, you know, we don't just want to see these guys sitting around talking about what happened. It's TV. Show us, you yeah, know, right. show it to us. So I'm so glad we actually got to see Midge and Susie have the conversation in the synagogue. We got to see, you know, exactly what went down. 
now we absolutely have what happened with Joel and his imprisonment. We know everything that's going on with that, or at least the, the meat of it, really. Right, yeah. So what did you think about the various stories? Did any stand out for you or or the fact that we know, like, which was the bigger thing? Like, we found out what happened between Midge and Susie, or did you want to know what happened with Joel more? I'm glad I got all of that information. I think the one that stands out to me as just the most fun is probably the Hawaiian wedding story. Oh, God. That was one told by the character Aaron Leibowitz. That's the Danny Strong character. What I liked about that one was the Paladino whimsy again that I that I, I think I mentioned over and over again in this podcast about just the aspects of the show that I like. In that vignette, Midge is set up to marry Philip Roth, a real novelist from our our world, who is a multiple award winner. He won the National Book Award, Pulitzer Prize, several other book awards. He is a novelist who's known. I'm, I'm just going to read this from Britannica real quick. He's his, his works are characterized by an acute ear for dialogue, a concern with Jewish middle-class life, and the painful entanglements of sexual and familial love. But I don't know that he's a lot of laughs at a party. I don't know that he's a great match for Midge, you know, in terms of being fun, like you might hope for Midge. This also was the only vignette when we got to see any of the Wisemans. And, and they were hilarious. They, All their talk about paying for the cake. <laughs> <laughs> right. Me meanwhile, Susie's talking about that, that, that they have uh, Three Dog Night, Grand Funk Railroad, Marvin Gaye, and Jim Croce, all on, and everyone flown there on Midge's dime. Right. Right. But they're like... Uh, we bought the cake. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to need to be paid back for the cake. Oh, oh my God. So oh, my God. It's interesting to me because we have definitely seen Midge dating and having some sort of that portion of her life. But it's fascinating how all these stories tell us that she got married over and over and over again because we've been with her for years and all we've seen her do is get divorced from Joel and, of course, get engaged. But no marriages in all these years. We didn't see any marriages, you know? This story, it's, I'm going out of sequence, takes place in 1975. The Joel arrest comes in 1985 when they are together at Temple. We don't know if they're married or together or, or, right, or that's just their seating assignment. I don't know how it works. But there could be a lot that could happen. She says she still loves Joel. And we have to see Susie have to do the dirty work. She has to go break up with Philip Roth. She has to undo creating this wedding. Mm -hmm. If we had, for some reason, lost track of all of the texture behind the name calling in the, in the, in the synagogue later, this is the vignette that reminds us what ground Susie does have to stand on when it comes to arguing with Midge. Right, right. I the, the story that stood out to me was um, the 1963 one told by Aaron Leibowitz about working with Harry Drake. And it was nice to see his character come back and, and us have an opportunity to see Susie really like pay tribute to him. And in, in his final days, you know, sitting with him, talking with him, reading to him, doing things with him, you know, it was very father daughter as far as I was concerned. And the exchange between the two of them, where she was like, you're the only one that noticed me when no one else did. And Harry's like, you're the only one I trust. I mean, it was very sweet. Again, the people who did not like this episode, I don't really get you exactly. You loved this episode. I mean, you were like howling with laughter and you were like all into this one. Yeah. 
I, on the other hand, I like I very much enjoyed this setup of having these people come together and tell stories and you know, again, this is a Palladino technique. This is the way that they do backfill their stories and give some character texture. It was very fascinating that Harry and Susie were the ones that were together when Harry died. Like his family didn't ever come, you know, and she had to actually pretend to be his daughter and everything. So to just kind of soothe him, think about how you hear things like that. You know, the show business is like your family and the industry is your family and how hard they all work and and how much they have to do that they end up spending so much time together. You really saw that with Harry and Susie. Like you really saw how this happens. Even with Susie, my God, the, the idea that your agent has to like deal with like your wedding and, you know, like just all these other things breaking up with someone. I mean, God. Right. It's like crazy. Like her job is nuts. It is nuts. And I think that they did a really good job of like pulling back the curtain on all of those things, what those relationships look like and what's the work expected, you know, for these different things and how they lean on each other. And again, forward motion with Susie's progress as a manager and as a person. Remember, she was okay with, I mean, she wasn't maybe okay with it. She, she did try to steal Sophie Lennon and she got smacked down because of it. And she learned a powerful, painful lesson at Harry's hand at once upon a time. But, but she did learn. She did. And, and Harry did. I mean, remember when they were in the park and he, it was like at least last season, remember? And they were like talking and stuff and on the bench. Yeah. Like they've, they've still had these moments, even when, you know, Susie has, Maybe in those in those times, I don't actually look at it like she was trying to steal Sophie as much as she was just like overreaching. Like she just still didn't know how to play the game, you know, mm-hmm. and, and was just making all these missteps. And so I, I really feel like Harry stood by her like more than anybody. I really thought it was really touching when Susie at the end was like, I'm here, dad. Harry like oh my god you know oh my god because we know Susie didn't have that family either you know Tess does not count (laughs) (laughs) well and it's very telling that he passed over his own agency to distribute his best clients back to Susie yeah so that's that's I don't even know if you can do that in the real world I don't know if you can either, but, but man, again, for people who are saying like, this was a meaningless episode and I didn't get anything out of it. Like you're finding out exactly how Susie went up the le- to the next level. It was all because Harry passed on these big name celebrities to her and that she had maintained that relationship with Harry over all these years, even though it was not smooth, it was realistic. You know, it was real show business, like up and down and up and down and good times and bad and everything. So I felt like They did a great job of showing and, again, backfilling how people got where they were moving forward. Totally agree. I loved, again, them delving into Susie's techniques of how she got deals done. We got a couple different stories about that, like the Triple Crown story. We got to find out about how, you know, she she's responsible for making decisions on the French Connection, the TV show That's Our Time, and Jesus Christ Superstar. She got that all greenlit in the same golf game. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. And just, I love that she, like, always knows to use... All the people who surround her, and I hate to use the word use, I don't I don't really mean to use that word, because I don't mean take advantage of. I mean, she sees the people who actually make the world go round. So like she 
befriends the caddies as opposed to the upper crust people, you right. know? Yeah. And she knows that those guys know the real deal. And so she's so smart because she comes from this more blue collar place where she's not going to try to rub elbows necessarily with the richest dude at the country club. She's going to go find who knows the dirt and who's got all the goss, you know, and, and use them to like her advantage. So I thought all of that was amazing. Again, I'm baffled by the woman's hustle. Like she's just everywhere all the time doing everything. I loved when Harry was like, you got to learn how to golf. Like that's where all the deals are made. Well, she at least just learned smiling. how to look at home on the golf course. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Like, maybe right, you never you're golfed. Right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> she just knows how to wear the outfit and then also kind of just wander around. Amongst she, she's the more golfers. like yeah, like golf camo is <laughs> what she was doing. That's very, very true. But everybody in that room, as much as they wanted to give her a, a hard time um, or they had stories to tell about her, I would say they all stemmed out of respect. I agree with you. I think that they were all amazed at all she had accomplished and really just smiling like you're right, like admiration at like, I cannot believe she went that far to get whatever that thing was to get done. She she is, you know, a force to be reckoned with. And they just do such a great job. I don't even know after this episode, I don't know if they have to do anything else to convince me that she is just doing it. You know, like she hustled and got every single one of these every client she ever had was really based on these relationships that she formed with all these unlikely people. And that's how she got to where she was. Well, and a series of people that didn't want to be her friend. Harry didn't want to be her friend. Mike didn't want to oh, be no. her friend. <laughs> but we learn that she taught, <laughs> she accepted Mike Carr as her Sith apprentice and taught him the dark ways of the Force with the uh, searching through uh, George's belongings for his own comeuppance. But George turning out to be such a fink, huh? Oh, man. Ah, oh, geez. But, you know, in the last podcast, <laughs> I mentioned that he was kind of kind of oily. But now we now we know the extent of it. It was, what did it say on the newspaper? Malfeasance. 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 <laughs> most high. Most high. Oh, my mm -hmm. Lord. <laughs> well, we also get this, like, Carmine um, story of, of Susie getting in deeper with the mob for muscle and about how, you know, she had to, like, send Frank and Nikki out to go straighten out Dinah's guy and, like... For me, I felt like it grounded Susie as a character because sometimes she can be like a caricature of herself, you know? She's she's like so silly at times, you know? And she's so over the top of like the way that she dresses or the way that she, you know, like has her keys around her necklace and, and like stuff like that, that like it all seems like a little bit cartoony sometimes with her. But these stories like grounded her for me. Like I felt like they were all like, I see her. I see her forming these relationships. I, I understand how she actually made things happen because of the way that she approached everybody. You know, she didn't try to be anyone who she wasn't. She didn't style her hair a certain way or start wearing, you know, clothes that the rest of the people might find more socially appropriate at this age. No, I think stage. she just wore cleaner clothes that she liked. She just she just was her. She right. stayed herself the whole time. That's what I get from this. Like we got all the way to 1990 and the Susie that we saw sitting there, yes, she had those streaks of gray in her hair. Yes, she was older. But she was still the Susie that we met at the very beginning. And I respect that because there was like this element of like she didn't lose her own self, you know, to the process. 
the other side of the mob story is not dated. Like most of the little stories are dated, uh-huh. but we don't get a very strict time frame on the Joel sequence and where that all went down. And I, and I double checked and I, and I didn't get a year on that. And on the one hand, I was thinking, well, is, is it totally consistent the way that they describe her relationship with the mob, et cetera, et cetera. But I think so. I think it is. I think it is. And it adds a complexity to her character because depending on when that Joel scene is, she could be several years into the deal with the mob following the Dinah scene, which was uh, described as somewhere in 1961-62, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when she decides to use the mob for muscle. That's kind of formalizing their union a little bit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I definitely think, I mean, you know, when they gave her the office space that they Mm -hmm. found, but they also were going to need to be working out of it. Yeah. And the funny thing is that if you noticed in the background, like I think it was two episodes ago, like Dinah was like sewing throw pillows and the guys were like stuffing the the fluff stuff in the in the throw pillows. Yeah. Who knows what they were doing? There could have been drugs in there or something. Who even knows what what the mob guys were doing? But it was funny to see them like they're they have their own schemes going on the whole time. If you watch them in the background, they're always doing something, making something. There was a, a scene with this where they, they had heads off of dolls and they were like at the bar and they were like, they were like shoving stuff in to hmm. the dolls, you know, it is like they're, they're always busy. <laughs> they're always busy. But where I was going was Susie wise though. Yes. Is that she knows it's not a winning proposition, probably long term to become entangled with the mob. Right. But she's able to kind of rationalize that somehow and be like, well, this is what I'm doing right now. And I'll figure that out later. To me, I feel like. You know, where Susie started and the fact that she had like zero connections and zero ways to actually, I mean, remember, you're talking about the last episode of like her little business cards that she handmade and and all those kinds of things. Like I look at it like, you know, becoming a gang member in your neighborhood or anything else. It feels like there's only certain ropes that get thrown down, you know, for you to pull yourself up to some other level. And unfortunately, it tends to be things like the mob or a gang or something like that, where you like have to owe a favor, you know, at the end of the day. And we saw snippets of this back. Remember when she was in Vegas and we like saw the like casino owners? Yeah. There was still all this behind the scenes, like everybody's got to get in bed with someone that's not who they want to be working with. But there's like these con men, these shady characters that kind of hang around wherever there's money. And you have to kind of make a decision of like, can I dip my toe in you know it's kind of like i think about politics today all the time i would never want to be in politics because it seems like you don't have any choice but to get in bed with somebody you know like that's the only way that things get done and so that's all i see in Susie's story is she has to like jump from stepping stone to stepping stone and they are very unsavory you know and she can't avoid that she doesn't have the money or the clout to avoid having to kind of get through that. So I give her a lot of credit for managing to do that and get out. I mean, it is 1990. She's not dead. She's got all her her limbs, you know, like she obviously didn't manage to piss anyone off bad enough, you know, to like ruin herself or her career or anything. So she's navigating this very treacherous minefield here pretty well. Well, and the way that it was insinuated is that Midge was the only escapee. Yeah, yes. So let's talk about the Midge Susie storyline about what happened. What was their big blow up? 
Was it enough for you? Did you feel like, okay, yeah, that seems like that was a bad enough situation that it would explode them? It's probably the tenure of the fight, the longevity, not the fight, but of the lie that made it so unpalatable to Midge that she could not reconcile that she had faced this person every day for several years. This is going to have been, let's call it 25 years Mm -hmm. where she knew that the mob was involved with her. So maybe 20-ish years ago, Joel sank his own future to save Midge's. Mm -hmm. And she has been dealing with these people day in, day out for that period of time knowing they know this they that she does that <laughs> that's the thing that is the part that would rankle her or me okay. so much that 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 it had the ruse have been going on for so long because it, it wouldn't be just like one more day one more day it's it's more like a compounded sort of thing it's, yeah it's, it's that's how hurt feels it's not it's not addition it's multiplication you know oh i like that yeah so, so yeah. Look at you with like your calculus over there. But then but then Susie, she has ground to stand on too. We've seen how much she did for Mitch. Mitch doesn't know no. what Susie did for her. Or really appreciate, because that's the thing. When we saw in the previous episode, we saw them all sitting around at Zelda's wedding concerned with their own issues, right? Who's gonna watch the kids? Who's gonna be cleaning or cooking for us or whatever, right? And the reality is, is like this group as a whole, most specifically Rose, Abe and Midge, they have people who do stuff for them all the time. Janusz was in the apartment for how long? <laughs> they didn't even notice him. And the fact that he was like fixing things or whatever, it just it's all like a given. Of course, my stuff would just mysteriously be fixed. Like, I don't bother my mind about how things get fixed around here. We have people for that, you know? It's like that. And so I think that Midge, first of all, was raised that way, for sure. So if anyone's, like, pointing fingers to say she's so selfish, I think you could also look up the line at Rose and Abe and say, well, where'd she get that idea that she's so entitled to just have someone be wiping something up right behind them, you know? Mm. She's just very used to that. So... Even though when we're watching it and we're like, how is she being so obtuse? Like, say, the wedding calling off. Here's Susie, like, trying to lay it all out, just being very practical, very reasonable. Like, these are the things, these are the steps that have been taken so far. They don't even phase Midge for the most part. I mean, besides saying, like, oh, I like Jim Croce. Like, she doesn't even, she's not like, oh, man, you're right. Right. A lot of people. I said I like funk, not grand funk. Right. 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 And you're like, oh, Midge, come on, pay attention. She's trying to explain not who is coming, but the effort it has taken to get all these people to come. And she's just hearing the who, not the like how and why and all the effort it took. So that's what I see happening here. Now, my one question mark is if I remembering all the, the numbers correctly, and I may not. So please correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. I thought that the mob deal was that 10% went to Susie, but like 30% of Midge's career went to them. It's, it was uh, 15 to Susie, 30 to the mob. Yeah. I'm sorry. So she's only getting like 55% of her earnings. Yeah. And that's why Joel knew something was wrong and needed to see the books. So given that money is probably as much as we can talk about all the semantics of relationships and all the what you said, it's the it's the years and years of lies. Money is probably the best 
reason to bust people up. It's not what these two talked about right then. Not in the synagogue. They weren't screaming about dollars and cents. But be real. We have seen so many different stars like Billy Joel or, or lots, lots of different people who were their managers or their family members who they thought they could help manage the money stole from them, like left and right, you know? Yeah. So this is like a known concern in the business as someone's like stealing from you. None of this stuff was said above board. None of this stuff was discussed. But I'm just saying for texture and for just like common sense, the amount of money that Midge lost out on, her kids lost out on, her family lost out on is significant to Susie's, the way that she she'd made the deal, you know? We don't know when the Joel scene takes place but we do know some period of her career passed right so there was money that was missed for sure and again it's not the thing and they're not talking about that but when you look at things like divorces and stuff like that yes people personally talk about the hurt of lies or infidelity or stuff like that but also the hit of any type of financial infidelity is huge if you're the agent, if you're the manager, that's a major part of your gig is to manage the money. They said some words in this. I got to say that I was pretty like, whoa. <laughs> right. Whoa. The see you next Tuesday. I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's some language that we haven't heard on this show that I was like, I know they say all kinds of things. And we do, too, in most shows. But I th that struck me. It's such a personal barb, you know? It's so nasty that I was just like, oh my God. I think Susie might have said that at one point, but never Midge. Midge hasn't been so big on profanity. Not that she doesn't. I mean, obviously, obviously she does. Obviously she it's, is, it's, right? I mean, she gets arrested for it. <laughs> right. But, but not like that. Amongst friends like this. This is right. different because this is not just like saying a swear for swear's sake or just for effect. I mean, this is at the other person. This is so harsh. I felt for, th for the whole situation because... I know Susie felt like her hands were tied, almost literally. I mean, she was going to be killed by the mob, if you remember. She really, she had nowhere to pivot except for making deals with them. And everything that she's had, including like her office and everything that she's been doing, all of her steps moving forward have all been tied up with them. I really felt like Midge should have asked more questions back at our Waste Management musical. <laughs> right? <laughs> That was a good time. I mean, yeah. like, how am I roped into this? Well, and how Joel, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Joel's watching those conversations and he's putting it together. But like, I, I guess, again, going back to how she was, she was raised, like there's a whole part of her life where she doesn't care how things get done. She just wants things to be done. Mm -hmm. So it would be an easy trap to fall into to stop asking questions. Is there one of the women whose point of view you side with a little more than the other? Holy smokes. To be honest with you, I think they really set up an excellent damned if you do, damned if you don't. Midge had expectations for her career. Susie was basically told, I don't want to know how you get it done, but get it done. Susie's life was being threatened. She had to play ball. I mean, she her back was up against the wall. What do you do besides play ball with these guys, right? So she had to get involved with them so early on that, you know, this has just been like a low simmer for her this whole time. And it came up to more of a roaring boil as she became more successful, right? Mm -hmm. So then it's like, you know, God, it's it's one of those things where you just do something small and you think like, hmm, maybe it's not that big of a deal, you know? But it just it just snowballed, you know? So for the two of them, I mean, the trust is unbelievable that you would have to have with each other to do this. But at the same time, 
I mean, no, I, I think they both have a valid point. They both had their reasons. And I think that they were very legitimate reasons. I think of either of them, Mitch could have asked some more questions about her own money. You know, I, I if, if anything, and I'm not blaming her, but I am saying you should, I guess this would be my advice to anybody who's <laughs> listening. You should always double check. You should always get a receipt. If they say, you know, your order was 10, make sure the book said 10. You know, you, you could do that. And I understand that you're supposed to be able to trust this person. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to. But you and I learned a long time ago in real estate, assume no one's doing their job, right? Right. Double check everything because you have to assume that accidents do happen. Legit accidents do happen. Mistakes are made. But I hate to put the blame on Midge because Susie made bad choices too, you know? Susie made bad choices. So I don't know. Do you, does one of the women stick out to you? Like, do you... Maybe it's a camaraderie for being a behind-the-scenes kind of person. But mm. but I, I side with Susie, I think. So here's the funny thing. I think of the two of us, I'm probably more Midge in a lot of ways. And you're probably more Susie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And then we'll swap. And you don't care how shit gets done necessarily. You just want it done. And, and I'm the same way. And we may not ask. We may not choose to ask exactly how everything got done or whatever, right? There's some amount of just unspoken trust, right? Like it got done. That's all you need to know, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. Please stop asking questions, actually. <laughs> That'd be best. So then in those cases, like if you if you willingly, willingly abdicate your responsibility for like accountability with the other person, then it is. Is it as much your fault for not ever like checking in and being like, hey, how much did that last gig pay? Yeah. A hundred dollars. How come I only have 12 cents? <laughs> you know, like it, it's probably not a bad idea to know. And again, I think that that a lot of times that this can happen with women where maybe it's like accounts gets just turned over and they don't pay maybe as much attention because of the historical nature of bank accounts and stuff like that, which this is like a historical show in terms of like Midge wouldn't necessarily have as much financial savvy because she wouldn't necessarily have her own credit cards and her own everything outside of her husband because of the time that this is set. Yeah, well, she's been divorced a while now, but I still see what you're saying. But she like the way that she like lives in the same apartment and like I money is not really a concern. Like, have you seen her be like, I can't buy that dress because I don't have enough money or I don't go to there because I don't have enough money. Like, I mean, it's pretty much she's it's, pretty, it's spotty. Finances are pretty much not a concern for the most part. Yeah. So, again, like, I don't know how much she's really got a handle on that. I, maybe it's one of those weird situations where it's like, how much is it the responsibility of the person to ask more questions? How much is it the responsibility of the person who full knows they have more answers over here that the other person doesn't know? How much is it their responsibility to put forth answers before those questions are even asked? Just bring it forward. And maybe that's a relationship by relationship sort of balance that at this juncture for these two, 1985, it had had enough. It had, it had too much strain. I think so. I, th I think I agree with you. And, you know, Mitch herself, her relationship with Joel, because of the way it changes so much and going back to how Susie and Midge met in the first place and her being on stage ranting about the man who walked out on her and her children and went off with the secretary. Like, we have to remember that Susie's thought process of Joel and Midge 
is very different than Midge's idea of what Joel and Midge's story is. Mm -hmm. And so he is the crux of a lot of the anger here, you know, because Joel is going to end up being the one who goes to jail. For Midge, she's so pissed that Joel, like, you know, got hurt by all this stuff too. But it's like, ah, someone was going to get hurt, you know, like, should Susie have gone down? Like, ah. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think about that, though? Is there a price to pay for fame? Is there a price to pay for, you know, as you go on? It doesn't seem unusual to me that you would have someone who got you through the nastiest, muddiest trenches, but then you end up with a different agency or something like when you get to the top, which is terrible. But I could see that being a thing. It does seem to be a thing. I mean, I think you see that a lot in terms of people's story coming up to the top of whatever their game is. When you, whenever you poke and prod, there's sometimes these gray patches, you know, in, in how it works. Because that part of their story is the part where... <laughs> the word that comes to mind is gritty. That's yeah. like the gritty part of their story. <laughs> the, the hustle had to happen. Or, and you know, things were a little uglier, got really dicey. <laughs> unglamorous. They, the people they knew before they met the person that got them where they are today, <laughs> we might not ever hear about. So let's turn that back around because we just said that. So if so many people have this gritty, nasty part to their story, the part where they had to dig harder, but they also maybe they had to go behind people's backs. They had to lie or they had to keep some information to themselves. So then if it's such a typical story that me and you are like, yeah, 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 that's probably the typical thing. Why are we even mad at Susie? If everybody's I just told story... you, I'm team Susie. I got, I'm wearing the t-shirt. <laughs> but audience members, of you guys listening, why would we be mad at Susie if that's just the name of the game? If having to slog through the crappy part is what everybody has to do in order to finally become famous, then does Midge have any ground to stand on to be standing at the top of the pinnacle of her success and her fame and all this stuff and be like, well, I never, you had to do all that to get me here. Mm." Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. You didn't know that some dishes were going to get broke. You didn't know we were going to have to pay some people off. You didn't know that maybe being a woman comic was not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I was going to have to do all this behind the scenes stuff. Like, I don't know. Maybe I am more on Susie's side now. And just for the record, there are days when I'm definitely Susie and you are definitely Midge. <laughs> well. Lately, I'm definitely a lot more needy, but I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been a tough 20-year streak. Oh, that's too strong. One uh, one thing I noticed, because we're kind of getting clo- out of uh, comments here, but in the Joel section when he meets Nikki and Frank, Notice that he he accepts the Christmas cookie from the child at the yeah. end and he has to say Merry Christmas. There's something about mm. him being Jewish in that Italian place eating a Christmas cookie is, I don't know, something like having to swallow shit for him, right? Like he's having to accept a new very backward way of doing things for him that's very uncomfortable but he has to do it and he has to say merry christmas when he's done you know it's Mm. it's it seems symbolic i'm not great at symbolism but it (laughs) seems like there's something there no i like that i like that i i definitely think you could go with like fish out of water right like this is this is these are not his people these are not his traditions these are not his customs these are not the words he would say. So he's having to become someone he's not in order to save Midge, you know, or, yeah. or trade for Midge's career. And, you know, that's huge. 
Now, I saw the actor was talking about the scenes about all this jail time stuff. And apparently when they initially filmed it, Rachel and Michael actually didn't know why Joel was in jail. Like they had the scene where they sat down and they had to talk to each other and, and do the headshot thing and all that with no, they didn't know themselves why he was in jail. And so there's, there was something about it by the end that Michael was saying he really hopes maybe he could stop getting so much hate mail because he was hoping that this is actually a good enough redemptive arc for Joel <laughs> that everyone can forgive Penny Pan and for, forgive, you know, the whole initial situation and really empathize for, for him a little bit and, as, and get it. As TV show redemptive arcs go, that's pretty major. Well, I was going to ask you, is it enough? Is it good? Did Joel need a redemptive arc? Do we care? Could he have just been the crappy ex-husband who, yeah, went off with his secretary? Did, did they need to follow up? Did he need to stay part of her story? I mean, I've commented several times on this podcast that I didn't need that out of him. However, I was only thinking in terms of the kind of shit normal people do for other people in terms of what? redemptive acts for another person. Like... I don't even know what would be a, a normal <laughs> gesture in the normal world, but taking on your mob note mm. and going to prison mm -hmm. for it, that wasn't on my bingo card, you know, <laughs> in terms of like grand gestures. Right. So I didn't even consider that kind of level i mean my my my, my level is like you know come to your grandma's funeral or something no, right to the airport yeah or, or like help you, know, you move move the couch <laughs> you know right, yeah. stuff like that definitely those things i mean to me again i didn't necessarily need that redemptive arc but you know what that makes me think it makes me wonder if they are going to end up back together at some point in these last episodes because they have to make us be okay with that. And we can be okay with that if he had to sacrifice in order to end up being with her after everything he did. Then I feel like we would, like, maybe more audience members would be like, okay, it was, like, earned. However, I would also, like... he's going to get out of jail, like, 1990. He'll have cheated on his wife in 1960. And I guess, I guess maybe the scope of things, like you just got out of jail in 1990 <laughs> and we're still going to hold Penny Pan against you in 1960. I love that. I'm glad to know that there's like a, uh, like an expiration date on I, stuff I, like that. Now that prison time's involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Shit expires. <laughs> Well, that's good to know. I mean, here's the deal. I am fine if Midge is alone at the end of the story. Like, yeah, okay. and that is something that's been discussed, you know, in interviews and stuff like that. Like, is it fine if she ends up being in the penthouse, living her own life, having her own things, being super thrilled with her own life? Does she have to have a guy beside her to to actually feel like, OK, she has it all? I don't think she does. They go through so many different men, famous men that she marries over the course of all these years. I find that part hilarious. And I know they went through the trouble of giving us the first and last names of all the characters that like Sean Gunn was playing or Danny Strong's playing. And so I invite all of you guys do your own research on these people because you can look up these people's names and there's definitely similar names that were like in the industry. So it makes me wonder like, oh, OK, we're like pulling out some other people. But overall, I really liked this episode. I thought it was fun. It was cool to have a departure from the same way that we tell stories. I think that they're experimenting a lot, it seems, this season. Maybe because it is the finale season for them. And maybe they just want to throw stuff at the wall and see what kind of technique, some different ways to approach storytelling narratively 
how do these things land with audiences? You know, yeah. is, is it is it good? Do people like it? I see that. Do you, do you are you feeling a little bit of like experimentation and like the way that they're throwing some flashbacks in at the beginning and a cold open, but then completely not doing it in a completely different way, but still experiencing these flashbacks? I I can agree with that, especially having so much of the show still left after this episode. Mm-hmm. This felt like it could have come later. later. Yeah. And now it almost feels like the rest of the show might have a lot of time split, you know, between then and later. Yeah. In order to kind of not because it's, it's, it's almost like they created their own vacuum that they need to fill with the reconciliation timeline. Ah. In addition to the how does she make it big timeline. How did it make you feel that Midge did come on that screen at the end on the video screen and did be like. Made me glad. Made me. Me too. And that Susie responded so positively and quickly about it. Like it had been for as hard as she has needed mm-hmm. to be. She it obviously still weighs on her. So and ultimately we do get like a time frame. So it's five years that they don't speak, we can assume, or at yeah. least are like on the outs with each other. I'm really glad they didn't make us live through that argument because I can say on other shows, I did not enjoy episode after episode of main characters not talking to each other. Well, this is a great way to avoid that. It is. Stagnating. Mm -hmm. When is this going to end? I'm wondering if they might have taken that same kernel of like, I want the two main characters to have a fight. I want them to be divided for a certain amount of time. But people really had an issue with it on Gilmore Girls. So how can we do it in a different way? How can we show a wedge between them and express it fully and have everybody feel the hurt, but in one episode, be able to fix them back together and still not have it seem like that was nothing, you know, still make it seem like it was, that was a a moment for them that where they busted, you know? I think this was a good way. This may not have been the episode you wanted right now, but I'm telling you, when you look back at the season, this shit, you're going to be glad that you knew. When you sum up what you learned this season, you're going to be glad you knew this stuff. So it is a great episode for me. I loved it as well. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find the podcast and enjoy it as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.